So where were you when you heard the news of the Queen's death? I was with some work colleagues. We were away together on an overnight uh, team training event. We'd heard earlier during the day that, that the royal family had been summoned to gather, that there was concern for the Queen's health. But I don't think any of us really were expecting it. <laughs> when the news finally broke that after over 70 years on the throne, the Queen had died. It certainly impacted our shared mood together. We spoke about how none of us would ever again experience such a long reign of a human monarch. We encouraged each other by remembering the Queen's widely acknowledged faith in Jesus. We just simply expressed appreciation for the way that she'd been there during our respective lives, an ever-present constant in a changing world. We sensed together that this was one of those moments that you'll always remember in life, either hearing about or or, or seeing on TV, akin to uh, the moon landings or the fall of the Berlin Wall or the Twin Towers attacks, which actually we remember today as well. Some of my colleagues were quite upset by the news of the Queen's death. And I remember being quite surprised by how my emotions were stirred by the news too. That may have been your experience. Or your experience when you heard the news may have been very different. That's okay, that's a very personal thing. But there is no doubt that the death of a monarch, especially one who's reigned for many years, and actually over the entirety of many of our lives, is a big moment for any nation or culture or society. We see that, don't we, in the extended media coverage of the event. The cancellation of sporting events is a mark of respect. The expected huge crowds that will line the streets of London at the Queen's funeral. But it is also a big moment for us personally, isn't it? Although we will all respond to the death of the Queen in different ways, her passing does give us an opportunity to express our thanks for her service in public life. To acknowledge, as uh, the King expressed it himself, a life well lived and the impact that she's had on this country. But moments like this also prompt questions in our hearts, don't they? Deeper questions that arise almost unbidden in these moments that maybe express a deeper uncertainty or give rise to anxiety that we might find. Questions we don't always have the chance to ask or consider in the normal busyness of everyday life. I don't think it would be unusual if many of us were asking questions such as, what does the future hold? How do we live when the things or people that we've taken for granted are no longer there? Where do we look for hope, for comfort or for guidance when we grieve, when we feel sad or, or fearful? Maybe those are questions that have brought you here today. Well, this afternoon, I briefly just want to encourage us that there are answers to those questions. And the God of the Bible is at the centre of those answers. You may be very familiar with the God of the Bible. (laughs) You may be a regular here with us at KCC. You may be a visitor with us this afternoon who may or may not describe yourself as a Christian. Well, wherever you are, I want us to see that beyond all human rulers, there stands a true king at the heart of the universe. A divine monarch who outranks all human monarchs. A God who is always there. Who always reigns in majesty and splendour. Who is the eternal, ongoing, enduring king. Who who we can trust and rely on and build our lives on today. See, I want to persuade us that that is a good thing. That there is a God who rules all things. And he is full of love and compassion and concern for us. So that although he is unimaginably great... 
We don't need to fear that his power will crush us. That our lives can make sense in light of the existence of this God. We can find our ultimate purpose in knowing him in a way that he defines and that he himself makes possible. But we can find security in uncertain days in trusting this king again. Putting our lives into his hands. Resting our hope in him and in him alone. Could it be that the God of the Bible can offer us hope and comfort and help in days of uncertainty? I think so. The Queen uh, thought so. This is the God that she believed in. We've considered that already. So what do you think? Well, to help us explore these things, we're going to dive into an event that happened many, many years ago, but has enduring relevance for us today. It's a story from the prophecy of a man called Isaiah that we read a few moments ago. And it's a story that connects with us immediately because it is set against the backdrop of the death of a monarch and the upheaval that such events bring to a culture and to individuals. And I want us to see this afternoon that in this story, Isaiah encounters two great realities that shaped his life and can shape our lives today. Two great realities to shape our lives in uncertain days. The first reality is acknowledging that the king is dead. (laughs) See that in the first verse, the first sentence. If you have a Bible, do look down. The story in Isaiah takes place in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, you may not have heard of King Uzziah. That's fine. He probably wouldn't make the top ten famous monarch lists if we collected one this afternoon. But he was a good king over God's people, the people of Israel. He'd reigned for around about 50 years. His rule had provided shape and stability to -to day-to-day life for five decades. But now the king is dead. Doubtless the news was disturbing, destabilising for many in Israel. Doubtless there was upset and sadness at the passing of a beloved ruler. Doubtless the news spoke of a period of national upheaval, of something of a soul-searching, uncertainty kind of feel. In other words, not too different, I think, from the position that we, we find ourselves in this afternoon. The story opens with the news that the king is dead. Because that's the thing about human leaders, isn't it? They may achieve great things and may impact many. They may rule for extended periods of time, but they can't rule forever. They all pass from the stage of history, whether Uzziah or Julius Caesar or even Queen Elizabeth. Although Uzziah had ruled for nearly 50 years, one day his rule ended and he died. And that reminds us very simply, doesn't it, that although we are to respect and honour our leaders, we must not put our ultimate hope in them. And that's hard for us because as humans, we're hardwired, aren't we, to look to someone or something as the ultimate grounds of our hope. We're designed to put our ultimate confidence somewhere. We're built to trust and to hope, actually in the Bible's language, to worship someone or something as our final security. And we're all doing that, even if we would never describe ourselves as religious people here this afternoon. It might literally be a political leader or an ideology. It might be the finances in our bank account or the physical bricks in our house. It might be our health or our beauty. It might be a romantic relationship or even our children. 
It might be our reputation in the community or the workplace. It might be our reason, our intellect, or the cultural assumptions we make about certain things. But we all do it. We all place our ultimate hope somewhere. So where is yours this afternoon? I think that's a relevant question, whether we would consider ourselves Christians here or not. Because the problem is, what happens when those things let us down? Which they inevitably will. That's not because they're not good things. It's just because they're not ultimate things. Those things will let us down. And if we put our ultimate hope in them, we will be crushed, thrown into turmoil, undone and disturbed and distressed when those things happen. Could it be that much of what we're expressing as a culture at the moment is evidence of that dynamic? The truth is that lots of what we put our ultimate hope in doesn't last and is terrifyingly fragile. And there are moments of clarity where we sense that and we need to lean into those moments and maybe this is that kind of moment. Not least in lots of what we hope in is fragile, as I say, not least in the face of our powerlessness to overcome the reality of death. So the chapter opens with the death of King Uzziah, but I think that reminds us all of the sure death, if I can use that phrase, of all our hopes if we put them in the wrong place. So there's the tension, isn't it? We're we're hardwired to hope, but we often put our hope in the wrong places. So what can we do? Where can we turn? How can we find ultimate hope and confidence that often will prove elusive? Well, that takes us to the second great reality that we need to consider this afternoon. So the king is dead. That's reality number one. The second reality to shape our lives this afternoon is long live the true king. The king is dead. But secondly, long live the true king. Because that's the movement in the chapter, isn't it? Maybe you noticed it as it was read out. We've got the backdrop of the human king and his death on the one hand. But in response and in, in that atmosphere, Isaiah is given a vision of the true king. A heavenly king, an eternal king, the king over all kings. We're supposed to see that shift. That's why in verse 5, Isaiah explicitly says that he has seen the king, the Lord Almighty. It's the language that he himself uses to express his vision. So we move from the death of uh, of much of what we invest our hope in, and then we encounter the true God of the Bible, in whom we should always and can always put our hope. What is this king like? We need to know something about him, surely, if we are to trust him today. Actually, one of the headlines on the BBC website this week asked that very question. What kind of a king will Charles be? Uh, The article had some uh, good answers and good thoughts on those things. It's a good question. Let's ask that question here. What kind of a king does Isaiah encounter? And there are three particular aspects of the character of this king that Isaiah accents for us today. Firstly, his greatness. Look down at verse 1. The king is the Lord, Isaiah says. The true king with true power. Highly exalted. There's that phrase as well. High and exalted. Majestic. Lifted up. Supreme. Uh, Verse 1, again, he's seated on a throne. That's a symbol of power and splendor and dominion, isn't it? Isaiah is allowed to glimpse the greatness of the king. Whose glory fills the temple where Isaiah is standing. And just as human royalty are often accompanied by those who wait on them, 
So this true king is surrounded by, we read, uh, seraphim, blazing ones, fiery angelic beings who stand in his presence uh, while the king sits. That's that dynamic if you watch the, um, the proclamation ceremony yesterday and the, and the accession council. The king was supposed to sit and everyone else stands around in his presence. That's the kind of feel here with these fiery seraphim. The king's greatness is shown to us. Secondly, the king's glory is highlighted as well. These seraphim display their reverence for the God in whose presence they stand by covering their faces, covering their feet. And we read verse 3, calling out to one another in praise of God. And here is their words, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. They confess the Lord is not just holy, not just holy, holy, but holy, holy, holy. The very standard and definition of what holiness looks like, the holy of all holy ones. It's the repetition that makes the point. It's the repetition that makes the point. It's the repetition that makes the point. Now, for God to be holy means that he is separate from us as our creator. Holiness speaks of how he's simply different in magnitude from us as his creatures. He is creator, we are creatures. But holiness also speaks of the character of the God who is, who is pure and unblemished, blinding, consuming purity inside and out. And in response to the song, verse 4, the doorposts, the thresholds shake. The temple is filled with smoke. Such is his grandeur. In response to this glorious king, Isaiah speaks, verse 5, and is undone. Woe to me, he says. I am ruined. Why? Why is Isaiah ruined? I am a man of unclean lips, he says. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. In the presence of this holy and pure, undefiled King, Isaiah is instinctively exposed, convicted over his own sin and the sin of his community, the sin of his people. Just like how you don't always see the, uh, the grimy marks on your windows at home, until the sun shines in and the, blight, the blazing light reveals the, the marks and the stains and the, and, and the impurities. It's kind of like that here. The sin in Isaiah's heart is, is exposed by the shining light of God's undiminished glory and holiness. So much so, Isaiah's conscious that his lips, as an overflow of his heart, are marked by sinfulness and uncleanness. He knows he should be ruined. Because his eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. The king's greatness and glory are highlighted. But thirdly and wonderfully, the king's grace is highlighted too. Because all is not lost for Isaiah. In an act of staggering grace, unlooked for, unexpected, the king provides a remedy for Isaiah's sin. Verse 6. One of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. 
God graciously supplies the remedy for Isaiah's unclean lips from the altar, showing us that it is totally God's work. Isaiah encounters in his vision the true king, the holy and exalted God, the separate and pure one, yet the one who offers grace and mercy too. That's the second reality that was to shape Isaiah's life. The death of the king, but long live the true king. Friends, I wonder what your reaction is to this true king this afternoon. I think encountering the true king here should prompt two reactions in our hearts. On the one hand, it it, it should cause us to draw back. That was Isaiah's instinctive response, isn't it? Confronted by the holiness of the true king, he draws back in conviction of sin and guilt. Because there is a fundamental hostility and incompatibility between holiness and sin. Holiness is dangerous because it will break out in judgment in the presence of sin. And the true king is marked by moral purity. And so anything and everything that fails to measure up to that purity rightly should be excluded from his glorious presence. And that should include us too. Because all of us by nature instinctively are rebels against the true king. All of us instinctively will ignore God, push him to the edges of our lives, live as guests in his reality without considering him. Often looking to created things to give us joy and meaning and purpose when we should seek those things in the true king alone and in his abundance. So we are in danger if we encounter God's consuming holiness. We are unclean and unfit. I think we instinctively sense something of that, even at a human level. Uh, In 1966, uh, England um, won uh, the World Cup uh, in football at Wembley Stadium. And Her Majesty the Queen was present on that day to present the trophy to the winning captain and to shake the players by the hand. The story goes that uh, Nobby Stiles, one of the England players, uh, realised as he was approaching the Queen to shake her hand that his hands were were caked in the mud and and the dirt and the turf uh, of the Wembley pitch, having put in a hard stint to beat the West Germans. And he noticed that Her Majesty the Queen had these pristine, crisp, new white gloves. And you can see him on the footage kind of frantically rubbing his hands on his shorts to try and get them clean. Because he knew that he was kind of impure and, 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 and knew that in encountering the, the gloves would, would taint them and, and, and wouldn't be appropriate and, and wrong. And, and you can see him frantically trying to make himself fit to shake the hand of the queen. Well, if that's a human response to a, a human ruler, how much more serious and problematic is it then, should it be, for sinful people to draw near the holy true king of heaven? And yet amazingly, And graciously, the true king provides a way for that to happen. And so the other response we should make when we encounter the true king is, yes, to consider drawing back, but also to accept the invitation to draw in. Because just as the true king in this story dealt with Isaiah's guilt, the true king can do the same for us today. How? (laughs) Well, as the rest of Isaiah's prophecy unfolds, it becomes clear how this will happen. You don't have time to, uh, we don't have it on the screen, but in the 53rd chapter of this vision, 
Isaiah introduces us to this enigmatic figure. He, he, he calls the servant of God. And actually, as the rest of the Bible unfolds, it becomes clear that this is God himself writing himself into the story. The, the, the king comes and walks among us. And this figure, God's servant, we read in Isaiah 53, was pierced for our transgressions. Punished. Crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. See, that prophecy is ultimately fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Who through his own life and death and resurrection makes it possible for a loving God to forgive sinful people like you and me. By taking away our guilt, atoning for our sin. See, in his love, he enters the story. He identifies with us. He bears the weight the curse, the condemnation for our sins instead of us in our place so that we might be forgiven. We saw these verses on the screen earlier on, but in the Queen's Christmas message in 2011, uh, she tapped into this thing, uh, this theme very clearly. She said, although we are capable of great acts of kindness, history teaches us that we sometimes need saving from ourselves, from our recklessness, Or our greed. God sent into the world a unique person. Neither a philosopher nor a general, important though they are. But a saviour. With a power to forgive. Forgiveness lies at the heart of the Christian faith. It can heal broken families. It can restore friendships. It can reconcile divided communities. It is in forgiveness that we feel the power of God's love. Friends, if we put our hands, our lives into Jesus' hands today, we too can be forgiven. We can move from being rebels against the true king to finding a place in his family and in his kingdom. We can be drawn in and no longer drawn, uh, drawing uh, away. Today, if you've begun to sense that you're exposed before the great and glorious true king, will you let him draw you in? as you ask Jesus to forgive you and bring you home. And actually, why wouldn't we want to be drawn in by the true king? Because there is something beautiful about the true king here, isn't there? Oh, it's edgy. It's not safe. Thank goodness. God is not tame and domesticated. There is a a right reverence. But there's something beautiful here, isn't there? See, in light of the death of the king of Israel... Isaiah sees the true king, one who doesn't age, one who doesn't pass away, one who doesn't get old, one who always lives in splendor and majesty, is constant in his character and dependable in his actions, one who is big enough to satisfy the longings and desires of our hearts for security and confidence. Here is one we can make the ground of our ultimate hope today without fear of frustration or disappointment. See, we can trust the true king as we put our lives into his hands, rest assured in his control over all things, know that he is good and wise and trustworthy. The events of this week will have knocked some of us. They have not knocked him. In our questions and uncertainties and anxieties, we can yet look to the true king, committing ourselves to his care and keeping. And the experience and the 
truth of that was sung very movingly in the opening hymn of the Thanksgiving service that you may have watched on St Paul's on Friday evening. The, uh, the, uh, the dignitaries processed into the, the hymn, All my hope on God is founded. May it be so. <laughs> and doing that doesn't reduce us as human beings. It's not kind of m- minimising us. It's not a, a kind of a, like, a, like a, a narrow way to live. No, it's, it's cutting with a grain of reality. It's the life we were made to live as we find our identity in him. So friends, will you let his beauty this afternoon draw your heart, draw your trust, and rest in him? Well, Isaiah, as Isaiah experienced that twin dynamic of on the one sense drawing back and, and, and yet being drawn in, let's finish by seeing how he responded. Verse 8, he commits himself to this God and to the service of this God. In his words, when asked for a willing volunteer to go and take the message of the true king to his fellow Jewish countrymen, he steps up, verse 8, here am I, send me. As we finish, can I suggest that's a great way to respond this afternoon? Not to resist the, the, this king, not, not to harden our hearts or uh, turn away from his gracious invitation to be forgiven. Not to put our hope in the wrong places, in fragile people, in fragile things, but to recommit or to commit for the first time ourselves to this true king and to his service. Because those who do so find the true king to be the one who gives life. (laughs) They find joy in relationship with him and they can know peace even in the darkest of days. So is the true king calling to you today? Here I am send me if you want to respond to the true king in that way this afternoon then do please speak to me or someone else uh, who's been involved at the front today we'd love to explain a little bit more about what that means and begin with you on this journey of responding to the call of the true king friends in a week when we rightly do grieve the death of our queen let's lift our eyes and see her king the true king the king we can rely upon and trust And commit our hearts to you today. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this wonderful vision in Isaiah. Father, it is striking that against the background of the passing of a human monarch, you are gracious to disclose this revelation of your true kingly glory and your supreme kingly majesty. Father, with this vision we pray, just as it comforted and challenged Isaiah those years ago, would it comfort and challenge us today afresh? Would it remind us for our comfort that you are the king of kings who we can trust, the one in whom we should put our hope? Human hopes are fragile and frail, but hope in you will never disappoint. Would this vision challenge us to realise that you are far bigger and greater and grander than we could ever conceive or imagine? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, we declare with the seraphim of old. And by rights, Father, we know we should be cast out. We we should draw back in fear of your holiness and your glory. And yet we supremely rejoice that through Jesus, the king who writes himself into the story, the one who, who in lowliness did suffer and die, 
and yet has been raised and is now exalted to your right hand as King of kings and Lord of lords, we can draw near, knowing that our sin is taken away and our guilt is atoned for. Father, would we find comfort and solace in our sadness, in our grief, in our uncertainties, in the days to come, by knowing that we walk with you, and the far more importantly, you walk with us. Father, we pray this for our joy and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.